Well, good morning, church. <clears throat> Such a joy for me to be able to share God's word with you. You guys can turn to Luke chapter 18, and we're going to be looking from verses 1 to 8. Great. Um, if you're there, you can give me an amen. Amen. <laughs> Great. So before COVID, um, I was what you would call a texter. If you, were to, if you were to give me anxiety, if you want to stress me out, just give me a random phone call. Sometimes I'm just too busy to answer the phone. Like, you know, when you enter the bathroom and you have to, you know, watch a video on YouTube and then all of a sudden someone's calling you. Sometimes you just have to let that thing continue to ring. But then sometimes in my sin, someone calls me out of the blue and I'm questioning, like, how important is this phone call I'm about to have? Do I have the capacity to have this conversation with this person? Or is this someone who I haven't talked to in a long time? And sometimes, you know, you just kind of let it ring. (laughs) And a couple moments later, I receive a text from that person and say, you know, sorry, you missed my call. I just want to tell you this one little detail. There's one little thing I just want, want to let you know, which just goes to show, like, why this person call. Like half the times the phone calls and the meetings that we have could have just been a text or, or an email in, in the first place. Me now in COVID, I've become a caller. I've learned that like when I text somebody, I do that because I'm okay with a delayed response. You can get back to me in a couple hours or even days. But when I call, which is now more often than usual, which may just even be my own impatience and selfishness. I'm calling because I'm asking to be a priority in that person's life, that what I need and want that I actually need now or ASAP, that upon hearing my voice, hearing my urgency would invoke a compassion or priority shift in your life to now address my needs. When we think about prayer, in many ways, it's like a one-way phone call. But we get God's attention. We, we first thank him for picking up the phone, that we have a phone in the, the first place. And then we ask him to meet our needs. But how often do we feel like when, we, when it comes to prayer that we've been sent to voicemail? Or that God has somebody else on the line? Or if, God just, if we just have the wrong number? How about when we slowly become apathetic in our prayers and our prayers become more like text messages, that we just pray and hope God gets to to those needs eventually? Or when we meet so much disappointment and letdowns from others in our world that we just simply give up on praying altogether? Now in your life, is there something that you have been praying about? praying for that God actually promises in his word. You're, you're seriously praying for this thing. You're fasting, but it feels like God hasn't done anything or will do anything. Do you feel like there's no point to pray about that thing anymore? That you can handle the situation on your own or take it into your own hands or just give up on it altogether. In verse 1 of Luke 18, it says this, And he told them a parable, to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. You see, Jesus knows that we as Christians will experience disappointment, discouragement, pain, um, letdowns, unfair treatment, injustice. 
In the same way that we, when we're really tired, us adults drink coffee in the morning to be energized. For me, it's eating sugar. God gives us this word. He gives us this passage that when you and I study it and believe it, we have the motivation, the desire, the faith to keep on praying and not lose heart, to not feel discouraged. Jesus gives us a story about a woman who does not give up and a judge who does to teach us how important it is for us to continue praying, understanding and believing in the character of the one who hears and answers our prayer. That you and I can pray from a place of expectancy and of faith, confident that God will hear us and do what's right by our prayers. And there's one thing I want you to understand by the end of this message is this, is that because God is going to make all things right, because God will make all things right, believers can keep on praying. You and I can keep on praying because God is going to make all things right. And I'm going to share with you two reasons why believers should not give up and keep on praying. So let's pray now um, and then get into our first point. And so, Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for your word that you have spoken in your word and that you still continue to speak. And so I pray uh, for the Holy Spirit to do a work in me and a work here in us, that as I share your word, what you have given me, that uh, you speak to each and every one of us that is here today for um, repentance, for faith, for trust, for obedience. I pray that... um, you prepare the hearts to hear what it is that your word has to say and that we be encouraged uh, to have the effect that we continue to pray and not lose hearts. I pray for all these things in your name. Amen. All right, so the first reason why you and I should keep on praying is because we pray because our world is broken. We pray because our world is broken. In verse 1, it says this again. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So I I love that scripture. It just knows how to preemptively deal with us. God is letting us know that we as believers are the ones who need adjusting, that prayer is not something that is redundant in the eyes of God, but can be viewed that way to us. How often do you and I pray nonchalantly, or we we, we say we're going to pray for people, but then we forget whether we don't think God's going to take us our prayers seriously or we don't think our prayers will even be effective ourselves. This passage is meant to set us straight. Jesus uses what's called a parable, which is a simple story that illustrates and personifies character to teach a spiritual lesson. And we get introduced to our first character in in verse 2. It says, he said in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. These are the scariest people to be around, the worst people to be underneath their leadership and authority. To not fear God is to basically not respect or agree with who God is to us and how we are supposed to then relate to him. God is our creator who has made us and has given us boundaries in how you and I are supposed to live. To go against those things is what it looks like to not fear and respect and revere God or to take his consequences seriously, which then bleeds into how we treat and respect 
others, the way we treat other people is a reflection of how we think and treat God. This judge, he doesn't see other human beings as equal in value and worth. Life is all about him. He's not picking up anybody's phone calls, whether he's free or busy. This is what God has to say about judges in Second Chronicles chapter 19, verses 6 to 7. It says, consider what you do, for you judge not for man, but for the Lord. He is with you in given judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality in taking bribes. This man, this judge, is supposed to represent and reflect God in the way that he treats others and advocates for his people. But this guy can care less. Jesus teaches us in his word to, to love God and love our neighbor. This guy is doing the opposite. He does not fear God and does not respect Man, these are the same kinds of people that if you were to read Psalm 73, Asaph speaks of. He's so confused and discouraged why people like this are prospering. Why is someone like this in such a place of power? Why does it seem like some of the the, the worst people imaginable are in the best places of change and good in our world? That is the judge that we see here in this parable. Let's look at the other characters in verse 3. It says, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. It's easy for us to to miss that there are three characters in this parable. There's a couple of bad guys here. Commentators will say that this widow would have lost her husband and is now owed a financial payment from the ex-husband's family so that she can be well off on her, her, her own. Women often didn't work as men did in these times. Or like Naomi and Ruth, if you read the story of Ruth, she can live with her ex-husband's family until another brother or heir can marry her or the family can work together and, and give her that payment so that she can be well off. But it says here that this person or support group is an adversary. This person's not doing what the law requires, which is why she's going to the judge. So you have this judge that is ignoring her and this support group that is not supporting her, resulting in two continual injustices happening at the same time. This is where we get oppression from, continued, prolonged, non-accidental injustice. Injustice and oppression is often multi-layered. There's this African proverb which simply says, when, a, when a, a rock is thrown into the crowd, only the person that gets hit uh, says, ouch. There, there are complexities um, that we need to be patient and hear others out when they are sharing with us the injustices they are experiencing. As I was studying this passage, I was getting upset. Like, what would I do if I was in this person's Shoes And the fact that she goes by herself to the judge shows that she has no other supports as well. Usually a male figure goes on behalf of the family, but she goes alone. We don't know if she has any kids or how long this has been going on for. We can only imagine our world is messed up and is broken. And in situations like this, that we can feel powerless and victimized, that we begin to question the existence and goodness of God. 
even in situations where we haven't even done anything wrong. And if you're here today and you have a lot of questions on the existence and goodness of God, I'm, I'm with you. Like, how can a good God allow something like this to happen in, in my life or someone else's life? C.S. Lewis is a writer and theologian who, who, who asked these same questions, and these are the questions that led him to faith in God as he searched the scriptures. He, he says this, my, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust, but how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. This goes back to the fear of God. We are moral creatures who have been created with purpose and intent, and it's when we think and act outside of God's rules and standards and boundaries that we hurt ourselves and hurt other people as well. And it's not wrong for us to point out and, 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 and notice where things have gone wrong in this world and want to see things be made right, especially, what would, especially when that happens to us. What would you do if you were in this widow's shoes? If it was me, I'd, I'd you know, look for the first opportunity to throw hands on this adversary. And if I was denied once by the judge, I would have just given up right then and there. How many of us do the same? Like we would feel that it was God's will, that for the judge to deny us once, that this is what God probably wants for my life. These are the situations that can discourage us that can lead us to a dying prayer life, a a disbelief and distraught that God would allow such things. It can lead us to not pray. And so here are some reasons that that, that come to my mind as the reasons why I give up and lose heart and not pray. First is that I believe that I'm alone, that I'm all by myself, that that no one is near or, or feels what I feel, no one cares or understands. They haven't gone through what I've gone through. They're injustice free and am not. The second is that we can refuse to be part of the answer. It's oftentimes where I find the best solutions I have to situations come to me while I'm praying. But 10 times out of 10, they involve me to go and do something as well, as if my faith is supposed to produce works but I don't want to do more work or experience more potential pain or injustice, so I stop praying about that thing. We can only assume one solution. We can, we can sometimes only want the solution that is the least involving of us, the least painful and easiest. We want others to compromise and not us. And then lastly, it can reveal selfishness. Sometimes the more I'm asking God to do something in my life, even when I've been sinned against, reveals just how selfish I am, that I want God to serve me and probably just inflict pain and suffering on someone else. Or am I praying so I don't have to pray anymore? Am I praying so I won't have to need God if he gave me that thing that I'm asking for? This widow probably has so many other reasons to, to, to give up in her context as we don't know the full context yet but still she went back and kept going to the judge to God's ordained agency it says there is a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying give me justice 
for my adversary, against my adversary. Why would she do this? It is simply because this judge here is the one who can act according to God's standard on the issue and do objectively on the matter. You see, in the same way that God has given this judge a standard and a rule and a boundary, God himself has his own standards as well. When you read and, and scour the Psalms and see the cries and, 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 and the prayers and the songs of the saints, often they're calling upon the Lord, capital, capital Lord, Yahweh, I am, covenant-keeping God. Don't you find that they're always saying, hear me according to your mercy, by your steadfast love, for your name's sake. This, this widow here, she can't book a hearing or, or serve her adversary as we can now. She has to wake up at the crack of dawn and run towards this square and scream for the judge to hear her. She would have to be the loudest person to be heard by the judge. And the crazy thing is that she's asking this judge to act outside of his character. This guy doesn't fear God nor respect man. She's asking him to be something that this man is not. When you and I pray, we aren't asking God to be someone else. We're asking God business as usual. We are asking God to continue being merciful and loving and just towards us. We're asking God to fulfill the promises that he has given us. Prayer reminds us that God hasn't changed, that he's still loving and merciful to allow the situation, and we can call upon him to do something about it. The other thing is that prayer has another benefit to us. See, this, this widow most likely has a lot on her plate, and actually going to the judge, though as stressful as it is to wake up in the morning, head to the square, and yell all day, she gets to go to bed each night which may even be the street, but she gets to have peace knowing that she has done her part and leaving it at the feet of the judge repeatedly. When it comes to prayer, Philippians 4 verses 6 to 7 says this, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then 1 Peter chapter 5 says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties onto him, because he cares for you. When it comes to prayer, prayer is a painkiller. We aren't designed to carry all our anxiety, which is just the fear of not being in control. God has given us a means in how we can give him our anxieties, to give them to the person who knows us and cares for us the most. And I do want to say that there are some of us who can still reach levels of anxiety that can cripple or, or hinder our cognitive functioning. And so we can be thankful for the methods and the medicine that can help guide us back to a place of balance so that we can pray. But the necessity and the benefits of prayer cannot be replaced by those things. It is by proper prayer that we thank God that, that, we, that we have a phone, that we have the gospel, that we can come to God and, and ask him from a place of favor, that God hears our prayers, that he is sovereign and omnipotent and able to hear our cries for 
help in this very loud and broken world, knowing that he'll make all things right. You and I can keep on playing because he's going to make all things right. When we understand this, when we pray, we will have supernatural peace, and that's a promise that God gives us. So we pray because we live in a broken world. Our second reason why we pray is that we pray because our God can fix it. We pray because our God can fix it. Look with me in verse 4. It says, For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Do I neither fear God nor respect man? Yet because his widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. It's easy for us to think what's done is done. Again, I myself, I would have given up after the first time the judge would have said, no, the head honchos kind of laid down his law. There's no change in it. That's just the way it is. But that's not the case when it comes to God. God is always the one who has the final say. In Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, it says this, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. This woman's verbal consistency to this judge feels like jabs from Cassius Clay. This word, beat me down, it means to blacken the eye. It's a, it's a boxing term. This, this, this man feels like this woman has him on the ropes. God is even able to make unbelievers and the unrepentant do good. Again, what's that thing you are asking God to make right that you have given up on praying about? This parable, again, it's about a woman or widow who does not give up and a judge who does. It's given so that we do not lose heart and keep on praying. It's given to us to help us see God as, as, as he is to be seen and then act accordingly. In verse 1 of chapter 18, it says, and he told them a parable. In verse 2, it says, he said in a certain city. But then look at how things change, how the tone changes in verse 6. It says, and the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? Luke reminds us that this is God speaking. This is that like listen up moment. Jesus really wants us to have a right view and perspective of God the Father. We get two rhetorical questions in verse 7, which actually help us learn more about the character of God. But this also helps us know how God views us, how, how we look like to God. Jesus calls those who pray to him the elect. So when you read passages like Ephesians 1 and Romans 8 and other passages in the New Testament, we see that there is a people of God that God has chosen before time, a people that God's parental and special love is on. These are the people who will trust and obey Jesus. But yet God allows them to cry day and night before he answers them. Why would he do that? Why would a good parent or father do that? How can he be good if he allows us to cry and and weep before he hears us? I really like C.S. Lewis, so I'm going to quote him again. 
and uh, he's a really good illustrator on these things. So there's this book called The Magician's, the Magician's Nephew and the Chronicles of Nardia, one of my favorites in the book. And there's this character named Aslan. And Aslan is this humble, wise, fierce, strong, powerful, and feared lion who represents God in this book. And the main character, Diggory, is this boy who's caused a lot of pain, and, and he kind of starts to fall in Narnia. And he meets Aslan, and he begins to serve Aslan in the sense there is a conversion. And before he is sent to do his last task by Aslan, he has the, the, the motivation or desire, the, the courage to ask Aslan for a favor, to pray towards God. And this is what he says here. It says, but please, please, won't you, can't you give me something that will cure mother the whole time Diggory is in Narnia. He's looking for a cure to cure his mother's cancer. And Lewis writes, up till then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and huge claws on them. Now in his despair, he looked up at his face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For that tawny face was bent down near his own. And wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. My son, my son, said Aslan, I know grief is great. What Lewis is trying to illustrate here is that God does not have a callous or cold heart when he sees us go through injustice or cover his ears when we cry to him and ask him to make all things right. God is love. He loves his children. He loves his elect. Again, in Romans, uh, it's not Romans, in Luke uh, 18, verse 7, it says, And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. In Psalm chapter 56, verse 8, it says this. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? I'm not, I don't don't have kids. Uh, You guys can be praying for me. Um, but I'm, I'm told that it's, it's in times as parents, they, they, they let their child cry in the night to teach them independence. You see, a, a good and loving parent doesn't scoff or, or, or grumble at, at, at that, but it's almost pain to see their children experience pain and suffering, not just in infancy, but as they grow up. But there is a wisdom or a greater good to allow such things to happen to them. In our sin, it may feel cruel that God is delaying justice, delaying answering our prayers. But there is a purpose and benefit when God does that, even when we are in tears asking him to do something. The reason is, I, I think it's because God desires to answer our prayers holistically for the good of his people, for justice, and for both of those things to follow his will. 
See, in this, this passage in Luke 18, it, it fits within a larger passage in chapter 17 where Jesus is asked, when is his kingdom coming? Jesus, in speaking of his second coming, gives us this parable. Jesus wants us to keep on praying because he will make all things right, but it's also specifically widening our prayers to the grand scope of his good and perfect will of his coming. In this specific story, a delayed vindication, a delayed answer reveals and it strengthens and it it tests and confirms the widow's faith in justice and her need for it. This this judge here, he, he learns for himself what anxiety feels like, that he's also fallible and weak and then moves to right action for his own sake. God shows no impartiality when it comes to judgment. And I would even bless the next person who would come to him for justice. And this adversary and this opponent would would learn firsthand, though elusive in the moment, no one can truly escape justice. And in our story, and in yours and my story, what is God doing in our lives by delaying justice? In 2 Peter chapter 3, it says this, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, the way that God is going to fix our world and answer our prayers to bring justice is by removing evil from it. But you and I should be on that list too. Our, our world is broken because our first parents, Adam and Eve, who were made in God's image and likeness, they chose not to fear him. They chose to go past God's boundary and law. And st- instead of being content as his creation, they wanted to become equal with their creator. God gave them everything they needed in abundance, but they still chose to sin against God. God was the first person to be offended by sin, although he could have brought justice right then and there. He could have avenged himself there, but he delayed it. He covers their shame. He gives them consequences and also gives them a promise that someone would come and fix what went wrong, that Jesus would crush the head of Satan. Jesus humbles himself by by coming to us as a man who lives the life that we should have lived. He lived perfect, sinless. He received injustice after injustice, is betrayed and arrested, beaten, mocked, and is crucified. He could have jumped off that cross at any time, but, but he stayed on, stayed on for us. He allowed himself to die for our sake. He takes the justice that we deserve upon himself. God fixes the greatest injustice, sin and rebellion against God by giving us a substitute who takes our punishment. God fixes the injustice that we have committed against God and our fellow man by punishing Christ. And it's when you and I confess these sins, agree with God that we have sinned against him and others, and ask God for forgiveness, believing in who Jesus is, Lord, Messiah, Master, 
God that we are then saved. You see, you and I wouldn't be here today without a delayed justice. You and I wouldn't have salvation without a delayed justice. God is being patient, not just toward us, but towards others as well. You and I have all had our turn in being the adversary. This is what God is teaching us when we pray about these things. God is delaying for a total good. Could it be that God is doing a work in you while you wait, doing a work in your adversary, even if it means them coming to faith in Jesus and being forgiven? And the benefit of not knowing when or how this is going to happen protects us from complacency and apathy, that we wouldn't trust God with what is best. And the crazy thing is that God even delays justice so that as we begin to pray his will, his will becomes an answer to our prayers. That as we begin to pray God's will, his will becomes an answer to our prayers, that God making all things right in his return because he's coming for us, because we ourselves have asked for it. Again, in verse 7, it says, And will not God give justice to his elect? who cry to him day and night, will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when a son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? When we pray to God to make all things right, we are ultimately praying for him to solve these issues, for God to come back and fix these things. This is the third rhetorical question that Jesus asked, and the answer is, yes, God will come to a believing people and to a people who believe. You and I, we don't know who the elect are in this world, but we know what they are doing. They are praying, and we know what they are praying for. Elizabeth Elliot says this on prayer. She says, prayer lays hold of God's plan and becomes a link between his will and its accomplishment on earth. Amazing things happen. And we are given the privilege of being the channels of the Holy Spirit's prayer. Prayer is what makes us partners with God. Every time that we have a prayer for justice, for God to make things right, it's ultimately a prayer for God to come back and for many to know him before he does. We know this in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And forgive us for our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That is justice. We pray for God to make things right on the cross or on judgment day. And it's with this assurance that God will make all things right, that we view God's justice even as a salvation. We're to read the book of Revelation in chapter 6. The, the saints are saying, how long? How long until you avenge us, Lord? And God tells them to be patient. But he does come. He does come and deal with sin and unbelievers. And in Revelation 19, this is what the saints say in response. This is what they sing. It says, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. Jesus' return, his, his justice, is not just a preemptive mercy to save us of what could be, but it's also a response of grace to what we have prayed for, a rescue that we have asked for. 
But again, will he find faith on earth? Scripture tells us that he who desires a godly life will be persecuted. You and I, until Jesus returns, will find ourselves in the place of this widow with enemies like this adversary or judge. But it's how we think about God. When you close your eyes to pray, when you bow your head to pray, who do you see? Do you see a callous, sadistic tyrant who enjoys to inflict you with pain and punishment that you're asking and begging for a favor? Or do you see a teary lion, a a loving father who is grieved when we are grieved, teaching and training us to enjoy the benefits of prayer, widening and shifting our prayers for his will, for saving and confirming, and then us waiting in peace and expectancy that God will do right by us and for us with his delayed justice, delayed answer to our prayers. It's in the month of January. We're about halfway there. Who's already uh, flopped on their New Year's resolutions? In my studies, J.C. Ryle said, it's easy for us to start praying, but it'll require faith to be consistent in prayer, for, to make prayer a habit about the specific things we're waiting for God to answer on. This is why the church is supposed to meet together to pray, that God's elect can gather and hear each other's prayers, to rejoice in what's getting answered and have peace and expectancy of what we are waiting for. Jesus here is speaking to the collective. Will he find faith on earth that when Christ returns and cracks the sky, he's interrupting a prayer meeting, that in the midst of an amen, that is when Jesus returns. Again, we don't know who the elect are in this world, but we know what they are doing and what they're praying for. And then lastly for us, like God's desire again is that after reading and studying and believing this word, that you have the effect to pray from a place of expectancy, to not pray from a place of discouragement. Is that you today? So I would love for us to actually practice this right now. So what we're actually going to do is we're going to pray individually or pray with the household or party that you came with. And we're going to pray about these two things uh, on the screen for you. We're, we're going to first pray that we repent of our lack of trust in God. So maybe you have lost heart this year. Maybe you lost heart last year. That, that, that was me. We can bring that to God, whether we stop praying because we, we believe that God won't answer our prayers because he doesn't care or love us. Or if we just stopped all praying altogether, we're going to first repent of that. And the second thing is that we're going we're gonna to bring to God new or past things to him, things that we've prayed for that we're asking God to bring justice, whether they're new or, or we're still asking God to do that. Let's bring that to God in prayer because he will. He has in the past and he will still. It's, it's just a matter of time, but it will be his time. So in a couple of moments, I'll close us off in prayer and the band's going to lead us um, right now, but let's take a couple of moments to pray um, about these things now. So Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you are God who hears prayer. Thank you, God, for this word and that you desire for us to be people who pray 
um, from a place of expectancy that you desire us to, to pray without any discouragement that you actually hear us and will do something about the things that we are praying for. We thank you, God, first and foremost for salvation, that you delayed uh, justice on man um, and have given us your son so that we may be forgiven, that the justice we deserve has in place on Christ. And I thank you, God, that, um, that you've done that for us. And I pray for those who um, are, are, are being led to make that decision to place their faith in you. I pray that you do a work in them. And then I pray for us who are saved who are discouraged. Lord, you, you witness the injustices that we've gone through. You witness the discouragement, the letdowns, the unmet expectations that we've gone through. And Lord, it grieves you. And I pray, God, that we be a people that continue to pray, continue to entrust that you will do right. Uh, scripture even says that Jesus offered loud cries and, and prayers, and he was heard because of his reverence. I pray, God, that we be reverent, knowing that you are a good father, knowing that you will answer um, every single prayer. And Lord, I, I thank you that you um, give us clarity and wisdom and, and vision to what we are actually praying for in delaying justice, that we are longing for your return. We are people who, does, who just don't want to live uh, lives without pain, but we do want to live a life with you, and that's going to involve you returning to make all things right. And so, Father, I pray that as we pray for uh, the things that are on our hearts, I pray that you answer each and every one of them that hasn't prayed for in this room, and I pray that we can long and expect your return to come soon and know that the, the true and ultimate and everlasting good will come when you return. So I pray that this word uh, stay on our hearts, not just for this moment or for this day or for this week, um, but that we be a people who um, continue to pray and, and not lose heart. So I pray for all these things in your name. Amen.